Hello, and welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Joan Pettit. And I'm Armando Luna. We're broadcasting from Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. We cover bicycling, trains and transit, infrastructure, adventures, and today we chat about zoning and development with architect Ian McKenzie. <laughs> How's it going, Armando? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's been a while, I think. Yeah, it's been a long time mm-hmm. uh, for me on the show, I think. I can't mm-hmm. remember. It's, it's, uh, it's been really busy at work, so um, I'm actually glad I had uh, a break. It's been a complicated time here in this <laughs> never-ending eternal pandemic, but at least we have each other or something. I don't know. <laughs> Before Ian gets here, I want to tell you about a very dramatic, well, that was a terrible setup. <laughs> I want to tell you about what happened to me on my bike. Okay. <laughs> or oh, what? oh, I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm reading the show notes and, and I'm glad that you just said it was on your bike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So this has to do with me and my bike and a dog. All right. So, you know, the bigger picture here is that I love dogs. I'm a big dog person. I have a dog. dog, right? I, he is, he is sleeping like an angel under my feet right at this moment. Yeah. And, and yet when I first started riding, uh, like a road bike on long road rides, I was living in Western North Carolina, Southern Appalachian, super rural, you know, there, there are like country dogs who are who are not socialized around people and who love chasing bikes, right? So that was always really scary on road rides. And my friends there had all these, like, we had conversations about how to deal with dogs on rides and people would like squirt their water bottles on them or with some dogs just knew to get off your bike. And, and then I had friends who try to squirt the dog with a water bottle and then they'd lose the water bottle. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I was always a bit wary moved to Portland while well, dogs here are not like that, you know, I mean, not that I had never known friendly dogs, but sometimes even if there are loose dogs they are usually friendly, if they're chasing you, it's not because they want to like eat you for sport. I was on, um, Northeast seventh. So basically it's like a row of, uh, parking for cars and then the bike lane and then like the shared car and trolley lane. So I'm, I'm riding down and I see that there are people up ahead of me and they're getting into the car with their dog, right? But this isn't a problem because the dog is getting into the car. So I'm going along, trying to be careful, giving them some space. And all of a sudden, the dog sees me and just lunges at me. And uh, I don't From even think it was a the car or outside. Her, like he was starting to get into the car, oh, okay. and like the people weren't really paying attention to the dog, and they didn't see me. And the dog just lunges at me, and it might even be like friendly, or it just wants to chase the bike. And I squeezed my brake so hard, <laughs> and I had two thoughts in that moment. I had two thoughts. One was, I'm gonna hit this dog, and the other was. <laughs> I think I need new brake pads. <laughs> was this during our dry spell? This is a few weeks ago. Yeah, this is okay. a few weeks ago. So 
I mean, this is really scary. I really thought I was going to hit this dog. I squeezed the brake so hard. It felt like it hardly did anything. They pulled the dog away or I navigated around the dog or whatever. It was just like so stressful. Uh, but then I, I brought my bike into the shop and got a few other things done. And <laughs> Oh, and then I found out, and then I found out that my seat post was too short. And then they were going to get another seat post, but then it was only available in black, and that is not the right aesthetic. So they wanted to get a silver one, but then they don't even make the right size for my 1976 Raleigh Mixty. But Metropolis happened to, ha- my local bike shop happened to have one. Uh, but then I didn't adjust it when I left. Oh, because I was walking my dog home. Like I walked the dog over to the bike shop. We walked home together. And then when I actually got on the bike to ride someplace, the the seat was way too short and I didn't have time to change it. It was very <laughs> awkward. And I felt like I was so self-conscious. I was in a rush to get someplace. And I was just so embarrassed. I was like, somebody is going to ride by me and tell me to raise my seat. I was so sure. I was so sure. And I was hey, going to be like, Secretary Pete. <laughs> It's too low. That's right. I want to be like, oh, no, actually, I'm a host of a bike podcast. I know my seat is too low. I just didn't have time. It was awful. I felt like I was going to go zoo bombing, like on a little tiny bike. But I did adjust it today. I did adjust it today before I got back. So anyway, that's my exciting story of, of what I learned about bike maintenance. So I just want to say, you know, check your brake pads before you almost hit the dog. That's the lesson. <laughs> that is our bike, our bike wisdom. Yeah, someone <laughs> asked me um, recently what they they were wondering what people do when dogs when they were riding and dogs came after them. I said my experience. This is my my experience is most dogs are barky and chasey, but that's it. Like ninety percent, right? Um, the other five percent of that ten percent are the dogs that will snap at you, but they won't actually get you. They don't, they don't want to, they're not trying to get you. They're just trying to, you know, I'd say maybe 4% and then, and then the like, other 5%, oh, you know, sorry. they're going to get you, they're going to get you no matter what, right. unless you're right. super fast. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the strategies, right? Like if you can, if you can beat them, right? Like not, not, not beat them with a stick <laughs> or you're, you're like, that's not what I'm pumped, advocating. No, if you can go faster than them right? Then you do that. If you're really stressed out, you get off your bike and you try to have your bike in between you and the dog. And a lot of times dogs that want to chase you do not want to chase you if you're just standing there with your bike, right? Or I mean, I'm thinking now of like the the mean, not socialized country dogs, right? right. Like Little they just want to, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, a lot of times if you just walk down their street, they wouldn't come after you or whatever. So you can put yourself, this is another, uh, a friend of mine who I knew when I worked in outdoor recreation, who had been a vet told me that if you were in a rural area and a dog is chasing you, that all dogs, uh, universal gesture that is leaning down as if you are picking up a rock and that they will run away. You don't have to pick up a rock. You just pretend like you are. And lots of country dogs will back off. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. People might get frustrated when they hear that, but if you're in a rural area and you're scared about a dog, if you pretend that you're going to throw something at it, those are dog strategies. People can write in with their other strategies. You can squirt them with a water bottle or just get off your bike and walk if you're nervous. Yeah. I grew up in a neighborhood. We would never have gotten off our bikes. I don't, 
I don't the dog do that after us. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Th- those were my like rural strategies. I wouldn't do mm-hmm. I, that's that's very different than here. You know, where we have all these dog park dogs. But on that note, looks oh, rural. You know, they always come after you after you're, you're getting up to the top of that hill, right? That's when mm-hmm. they come after you. <laughs> right, right, yeah. When you're slowing down a little, not when you're cresting. That's why the dogs live at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> it's our guest. What a treat! Hello, Ian. Hello. So nice to Hello. see you. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. And so now welcome to our guest and my friend, Ian McKenzie. Hello, Ian. Uh, hi, Joan. It's so nice to see you. Can you introduce yourself for folks? And we did get a request if you could <laughs> if you could introduce yourself with your name in English and then in, in Gaelic. Is that? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I'm Ian McKenzie. Uh, I'm Ian McKenzie, or alternatively, is Misha Ian McKenzie. Uh, I'm from Scotland originally, as you might tell from my accent. Uh, and then um, what I just said was my name in Gaelic, um, which is the native language of where I grew up. And uh, uh, I, uh, I've lived in Portland for about 12 years, and I work here um, in architecture, and I'm very interested in architecture, urban design, development, and and cycling, and how and how those things all interact with each other. Well, Ian, so there is a story you told me once that I just loved because you grew up in Scotland, but you grew up with also American citizenship. And so you told me the story of, of how it ended up uh, that your mom, an American, ended up in Scotland. So can you share that story? Uh, yes. So it was um, the early 80s and uh, my mother, uh, who was living in America at the time, decided uh, it would be a great idea to do a cycling trip through uh, Scotland. And so she was on a bike going through the uh, going through the highlands of Scotland and um, came into the village that I grew up uh, in, Plockton, in the northwest highlands of Scotland, and decided um, to try and check into the Plockton Hotel, which at the time was run by my aunt and uncle. And um, they were actually full up for the night. And my uncle, instead of uh, directing her to one of the other hotels in the village or any of the B&Bs, was a great brother and sent uh, sent her to the campsite, which at the time existed and was run by my dad. Uh, so my mum went there and, you know, despite the fact that she was thinking she might have a nice night in a hotel, um, uh, set up a tent in the campsite in Plockton and, um, and uh, met my dad. Uh, they were married the next year and then the year after that I was born. And so, yeah, so that's how... So, uh, if it wasn't for cycling, I wouldn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And if it wasn't for your aunt and uncle being like, oh, send her. <laughs> <laughs> send her to my dad. So how do you know how far into that trip she was? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think I love that story. Like, she just thought I, she was I going. brought me here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, of course, you made your way back here. Uh, yeah, so um, I have a lot of family connections to the Pacific Northwest and uh, happened to visit here a few times. And then um, one time I came over to stay for three months and um, three months has turned into 12 years at this point. Oh, so you did the same oh, wow. thing as your mom did. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. So this is the, the, the McKenzie way, huh? <laughs> yeah, just, you know, move back and forth across the Atlantic. 
Go for a visit, stay for a lifetime. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, what we, in addition to that great story, we had some questions for you. So, Ian, I met Ian through Twitter, actually, I believe. Um, Yeah, me too. Started following him on Twitter. And there's a, there's a group of, uh, <laughs> there's a group, I would say they're not all Portland folks, but many Portland folks that are on Twitter and are in a general audience, let's put it that way. Um, and a lot of the topics are about bikes or cities uh, and architecture, things like that. And Ian, you posted, you started posting a lot about architecture and zoning and for, you know, for, I'm going to say for the wonky people, it was really exciting because no one People had posted things a little bit like that before, but your your thing your postings were so intense and so informative. Why did you start doing that? And how, I guess how how did that all come about that you decided that you wanted to share that information on Twitter? You know, no matter what it is, the the key to winning Twitter is just post about something that you know a little bit about and post it repeatedly, and eventually the people who are interested in that will find you. <laughs> and so I guess that's kind of my specialist subject. Okay. Can you tell us broadly about how these are your things? So these are huge topics, uh, but can you talk broadly about how architecture and zoning are related to the way that we bike through cities? Sure. I mean, I think no matter where you are in the world, there are some, you know, commonalities around what what makes successful cities uh, where you have a lot of people cycling in them and particularly not just cycling as a leisure pursuit but just cycling as a way to do their daily tasks and one of them is that things have to be within a destination that's reasonably uh, reasonably close to cycle too and you know there's kind of a sweet spot not many people will choose to cycle to get uh, to destination just a couple blocks away because it's easier to walk but similarly if something's 10 miles away Sure, there's people that will cycle that, but not not many people not many people will. And so, if you're in a situation where you you can easily, whether it's get to work, whether it's get to medical appointments, whether it's get to the shops, and you can do that in a relatively easy short journey, then that's the thing where it just becomes the easier thing to do. Like even if you have a car, then just jumping into your car. And where zoning plays into that is you're only going to have enough people who live within a close enough distance of their destinations if you can allow relatively dense housing. And this doesn't have to be, um, you know, mega city kind of stuff. You know, the very kind of sprawling suburban suburban kind of neighborhoods, particularly without good street connectivity, just make it really hard to get things close enough, even if you have relatively good infrastructure uh, that you can cycle along. And so that's something that I've just been really interested in. How do we, particularly in an American context, uh, how do we make our city somewhere that is conducive to cycling in? And so one thing that I know you've been really engaged with locally, but is not just applicable to Portland, is about uh, residential infill. So can you explain what that means and what it is and kind of what's happening in in places that you know about either here or others? Sure. So for kind of uh, the last five to probably even seven years, a lot of the discourse around housing in Portland has been taken up with discussions about what we call the residential infill project, but this is not a conversation that um, Portland is having alone. This is something that's being talked about all across uh, the country and to that matter internationally. 
Portland, like many, many cities uh, in America until very recently, almost all the city was zoned for single family uh, houses only. And that means if you have a 50 by 100 uh, plot of land, it's legal to build one house on it, maybe sometimes a backyard cottage, but nothing else. You can't build a, a duplex or townhouses or a triplex or a fourplex. And a, and that's a, uh, and that's actually really historical because when you're in the older parts of Portland, for those who know Portland, if you cycle along, say, um, Ankeny or Clinton, you'll cycle past a lot of houses that have two, three, four front doors because those were originally built as multifamily houses. And um, uh, it's something that we decided in the 1950s we should make illegal uh, for a great number of reasons, including making it easier to, uh, after racially restrictive covenants were struck down by the Supreme Court, it was a way to zone out lower cost forms of housing in order to uh, keep so-called desirable areas white, whites only. But, you know, it has a lot of other negative effects as well. And it's a, a conversation we've been having in the city about all the all the harms of that. And Portland, like a lot of other cities, we've been having a real affordability crisis. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the dream of the 90s that was in Portland, where you can come here and afford to live in an inner part of the city on, you know, not terribly high income. That's something that's uh, not really achievable anymore. So Portland last year, actually decided to finally completed the process of reforming our zoning code. So in almost every part of the city, it's legal to build at least a four, a fourplex on a site. And then if half the units are affordable to certain people at a certain income range, you can build up to six units on a lot. And that's uh, something with a lot of benefits and something that a lot of other uh, cities and indeed states are looking at doing as well. It's interesting what you say about how the way we think of uh, single family housing isn't necessarily historical. Like my house was built around 1904. And like a lot of houses in my neighborhood, I'm pretty sure it's at some point it was a duplex, not maybe an official duplex, like on the records, like still just with one front door. There's like plumbing in my bedroom upstairs <laughs> and there's a spot that looks like it was probably where like there was a small fridge and there are some shelves that I think like I basically think what I use as a large closet was a kitchen <laughs> you know and so I think and there's a bathroom upstairs and downstairs and so I think basically that the house I don't know if there were interior walls or other doors but I think essentially it functioned as a duplex and at some point was converted back. Yeah. Well, even if the house didn't have two front doors, uh, a type of housing that used to be really common is um, having a lodger. Um, and, you know, that provided both for the person who owned the house, a source of income and for the person living in it, a, mu a much more affordable um affordable place to stay without um, having to have an entire house to themselves. And oftentimes you would have, um, uh, if not a completely separate unit within the house, but separate provisions in, say, the upper part of the house. And I think just over time, our um, our idea of what constitutes housing has unfortunately gotten somewhat narrower in this country. Yeah, I think about that a lot because, I mean, I have my kids living with me and at some point, I mean, oh, I can't say with absolute confidence, but at some point they may move out of the house. <laughs> we can, we, you know, I 
Who knows? Some days I wonder, but you know, and I, I love my house and I've thought a lot about that. It would be nice to stay in this house, but I don't necessarily want a four bedroom house just by myself. And I could get a housemate, but the idea of actually having my house be a duplex. So you still sort of have, or, or like essentially having a lodger who has their own space rather than sharing so much. I mean, I get it. I get why people would take big old houses and maybe want to stay in the neighborhood. Cause it's not like you can just go around the corner and find a one or two bedroom house, right? Like it's not that easy and you have connections in the neighborhood. So, um, so it sounds like, Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? No. And I was just saying, you know, a lot of people, um, one of the unfortunate things about having single family um, only zoning is, you know, maybe a big house with lots of bedrooms works really well for a certain period of time when their children are at the age when they're living in the house. And then a lot of, um, a lot of people find that that's not necessarily the right setup for them at a different point in their life. And yet people also don't want to, leave their neighborhoods because that's where they have, you know, their, their networks, their friends, uh, perhaps uh, extended family and, you know, having more options really, you know, gives people an option to stay where they are. Right. And you can do something like uh, build like a cottage or like an ADU in your backyard, but I don't want to live in my backyard. I want to, <laughs> I want to live. I mean, I would be happy to have that, but like, I want to sit on my front porch and chat with my neighbors when they walk by, when it gets warm again, which I hope someday. We're, we're all looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Ian, you're, so you're talking about, you know, houses, maybe maybe becoming duplexes or even fourplexes in portland there's a lot of apartment complexes that are being built and a lot of them are, have low parking or maybe even no parking but whenever they talk about that they talk about i say they people people on twitter uh where, where's everybody going to park but they're mostly talking about cars when they talk about that neighbors where where are they, where's everybody going to park but we don't hear a lot unless you follow it specifically about bike parking in some of these places how how does that work when you know you're building a, an apartment building for 50 units and you know that there's not going to be there's going to be minimal or maybe very low parking for car vehicles what about bike parking how does that work well portland actually has pretty strong uh, despite not having um in most instances, any requirements for uh, car parking. We have quite strict requirements for bicycle parking, and uh, we recently updated them. And one of the great things that we updated, they really considered all the different kinds of bikes that people have. So you used to be able to build bike rooms for an apartment building where just every single thing was a wall-mounted bike, and now there's a bike rack, and now there's a limit to the percentage of wall-mounted racks you can have, You know, knowing that not everybody is able to lift up a bike um you know they rewrote it so that um, there has to be a certain number of electrical outlets in the in the room to enable people who have e-bikes to charge them and there has to be a certain number of longer larger floor mounted spaces for people to park say um cargo bikes or um, other kinds of longer bikes taking a step back typically in uh here you you have to build what one and a half spaces per apartment unit for uh bicycle parking and one of the big debates is is it better to provide that in a dedicated space in the unit upstairs or uh, is it better to provide dedicated uh, bike room? And I think if you were to ask 30 people with opinions on this, you'd get 30 different answers. And one of the things that I don't think anybody's come up with a good answer to is the large bike rooms, unfortunately, uh, are quite prone to theft. But also, uh, not everybody wants to be able to, 
wants to take their bike um, up through the elevators or stairs of a building, you know, into their unit. So it's, it's a tough challenge that we haven't quite cracked yet. I was wondering with some of the, um, you know, we read about the bike room thefts where people gain entry to the bike rooms and, and steal the bikes. If um, I sometimes hear that apartment buildings that have the bike rooms don't allow the tenants to bring their bikes to the units, but I don't know if that's a, a policy of the apartment, you know, of the management unit or what? As far as I know, as long as they didn't rely on having dedicated spaces in the unit, I don't know of any requirement that says that people have to be able to take their bike, have to be allowed to be able to take their bikes up to the units. But, uh, but yeah, it is a concern. And sometimes building managers, they don't want people bringing bikes through you know, through the elevators and corridors because of wear and tear concerns. And, you know, honestly, it's something, if there is a great answer to all these issues, I haven't actually heard them yet. Yeah. And I I think about this a lot too, because I think for me, it's like, well, you know, I have two bikes and maybe I'd want my lighter, nicer uh, road bike in the unit with me because I don't ride it as much. I'm more worried about theft and, you know, have my everyday bike, uh, a little easier to get in and out, but I would probably be locking it up because I, yeah, I have, I have some friends whose bike was stolen and then the management like put new locks in and then the same, and I don't know if it was the same or different people like broke into the bike room again. Cause a, a lot of times they have like exterior doors, right. Which is very convenient for bringing your bike in and out, but it makes it very vulnerable to theft. But then, um, uh, yeah, the, the e-bike question is a good one. I've been thinking about this too, because I want to get an e-bike, but I have like stairs in and out of where I keep my bike. And that's actually, I mean, that is, that's a significant in older buildings with, if there's like stairs to get to the bike room and you have an e-bike or you have a mobility limitation, or you just have a heavy bike because you've got a cargo bike that you ride around with your kids. I mean, a couple stairs could make it so you just can't even, it's just not useful space at all. You know, you bring up the issue of stairs, you know, any kind of, um, any modern larger building is going to have to be, is going to have an elevator and typically is going to have stepless access all the way to the unit. But that's not necessarily the case, both with some of the smaller ones that aren't subject to the um, accessibility requirements, probably more importantly to the large stock of older apartment buildings that we have uh, in the city and, you know, any other any other city. And uh, something that I'd really like to see Portland take on as an issue that um other cities have started to do is think about providing uh, long-term bicycle parking um, in the street, replacing car parking spaces. I've seen uh, cities like um, uh, London and Dublin uh, have interesting programs about this, um, New York City as well. And so, you know, we've really got to think about not just how do the people who are living in new apartments get their, you know, bicycles in and out of, and that's something the zoning code can handle quite well. But, you know, how does everybody who lives in everything that was built up until now um, who doesn't have a single family home, how, how are they able to store their bikes? So when you're saying street parking or, or you don't, do you just mean like, um, you don't just mean staples, you actually mean like an enclosed lockable bike room? 
Uh, yeah, so I've seen things where it's a prefabricated, almost um, dome-shaped thing that covers covers the bike. It's uh, the bikes is lockable. I don't know. It provides I don't know maybe you know ten bicycle parking spaces in what would be one car parking space, but it's uh, lockable and covered, which hopefully helps with the theft issue that we we're describing. And um, you know, particularly in dense older neighborhood, you know, if you're going to make cycling popular in those kind of neighborhoods, you really need to be able to do that. Yeah, that seems like a great use of the public right-of-way to convert a car parking spot or two into bike parking yeah. and then to be, and to be able to, I mean, and I suppose what you're doing is essentially giving that space to residents of the unit, but who would be parking there if their car, you know, they might be parking one car there instead otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it's always a trade-off in cities is that you don't have finite space and if you plan around the idea of having finite space you just have very spread out cities that have other problems with that model of planning you know if you can use one space for one car or you can use it for 10 bicycles i think it's pretty it's pretty obvious which is the more efficient use of space i mean i think to our listeners it's a pretty pretty easy one um it was interesting because uh, a few years back um, i think it was bike portland um hosted a an event where we were talking about um, the updated bicycle plan for Portland. And there were a few uh, spokespeople at the event. And one of the people at the event that was speaking, I want to say he was an architect, but he, he, I think he was representing the um, maybe the management firms of the apartment buildings or something like that, or maybe, maybe it was an architectural representative. Uh, But the way we talk about, you know, one car space versus 10 bike spaces, it makes sense to us. For him, he was explaining that they're selling that car space and they're not selling the bike space. So they can get, you know, money for that car space. And so people that are building, you know, people that are, are paying to have this apartment complex built, they want to see the revenue from that parking space for the car versus 10 spaces for bikes, right? And that was something I had never thought about before. Certainly in the in the denser parts of the city where on on street parking is not um, uh, is not so readily available. Uh, most buildings will charge for parking, uh, and I will uh, caveat this by saying I'm not a developer and, and not an expert on performers. But what I can say from my own professional experience is building structured parking is extremely expensive, and you know the size of a parking space plus the amount of drive aisle that you need to access that parking space, it very quickly uh, approaches the size of a small studio apartment. And even though it's not going to be as expensive to build a parking space as it is to build an apartment with you know kitchens and bathrooms and everything, you're not going to get anywhere near the rent. You know, even if you're charging two, three hundred dollars, that's not very much compared to the rent of uh, what apartments rent for in Portland or any other city these days. And so even if they try and recoup recoup some of that revenue, I don't think uh, a lot of people are making the vast majority of the income of an apartment building out of the structured car parking spaces. And of course, last spring we had uh, Tony Jordan on, who had lots of lots of thoughts about parking <laughs> to share with us. Well, let me ask you a question. So, like the way that Portland is requiring bike parking in new new buildings, right? Is that I, I just have. I hadn't actually thought about how that all worked till now. Is that pretty common in like? 
in bigger cities or do you know, I mean, I know Portland is, is the place you know best, but do you have a sense of how that looks in different places in the U.S.? I think uh, most large cities have bicycle parking requirements these days. Um, happy to be corrected if that's not correct. But I do think with some of the updates that we've done, uh, we have one of the stronger codes nowadays. And, um, you know, I was just talk- we were talking about residential, but one of the other things is um, uh, we also have very strong parking requir- bicycle parking requirements for um, uh, for office uses and so uh, obviously there's not a lot of people who work in the kind of downtown office environment who are currently working in those offices but in uh, in more normal times uh, you you do have a lot of people cycling in into work and uh, you don't just you don't just see new offices built with significant elements of parking you actually see um, older office buildings that are trying to compete for office ten- uh, tenants uh, updating their bicycle parking, including the building that I work in uh, three or four years ago, uh, they completely um, redid the basement and we've actually got rather lovely bicycle parking in that. Now, so it is a, something that um, owners of office buildings will actually compete on. Okay, I had no idea. So there are rules like for new office buildings or if they're renovated? Uh, what are the, is it like per, how does that, is it a square foot thing or? It's, uh, uh, please don't ask me uh, exactly what the, I will what not, the amount I'm not is, asking you but, but, Generally. Um, but <laughs> yes, uh, per a certain square foot of office, uh, you're required to provide a certain number of um, uh, bicycle parking spaces. And that's typically um, for cities that have uh, parking requirements for vehicles. That's typically how they would calculate it. You know, they might say you need one car parking space per a thousand square feet or uh, four parking spaces per a thousand square feet. And we've mostly got rid of those requirements and replaced them with requirements to provide bicycles. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I went into, I had to go into work recently. I'm, I'm, I'm a teleworker, so I work remotely, but I had to go in because I actually had to plug my my laptop into the network and uh, I went to one of our locations downtown and they had offered there there's bike parking like outside on staple racks. And then they have a parking garage where cars park, but they also had bike racks in that area. Um, but when I went into the building, they actually had a sign that they had, they have a bike room now that's on the second floor. Um, and I didn't know about it at the time, um, but they're, so they actually offer a bike room. I didn't get to see it though and see how big it was on, and what was in there. Um, but I was really glad to see that because downtown is a lot different now than it was three years ago. And uh, I would have rather have brought my bike inside <laughs> into the bike room than leave it out on the staple rack outside and keep coming down and checking on it. <laughs> yeah. And certainly, um, you know, for most people I know if they're um, cycling into work and they're going to be there for eight, nine hours, they don't want to leave their bike just locked up on the street. They want to have it in a secure room. And, you know, and from what I've heard, the the issue with a uh, theft that occurs in apartments, I don't think that is such a, uh, such a big problem in uh, office buildings, particularly because uh, you know, most of the bikes are there during the day rather than in the middle of the night. Right, right. And people are maybe coming in and out a little more often yeah, from, for those, sure. from those places. Man, I would like to see... I. <laughs> I would like to see, I don't know if I want this to be a requirement, but I would just love it if there were just easier like shower facilities and things like that as part of this. And 
when I started bike commuting, this, this isn't, this stopped being an issue for me so much, but it took me a while to transition away. Like I had this idea that I had to be freshly showered arriving at work. Right. So I wanted to get to work and then take a shower. And now I don't care anymore. (laughs) I guess (laughs) like, I guess I got over it or, or, and you know, also when you, I don't know, maybe I lived in Portland long enough. Maybe I just got in slightly better shape. So I didn't feel quite so sweaty when I got to work. But perhaps we don't need to deconstruct the reasons, but, (laughs) but, but, um, you know, like you can, and I feel like people new to bike commuting ask this question a lot, right? Because they want to be able to show up to work and feel and like, feel like they can like clean up a little. So sometimes it's like great to have a place to lock your bike. But then what would be really nice is even if you didn't have a full shower, if there was also just like a, a bathroom with like a little bit of privacy, like you don't need like a suite you know, or a spa, but just to be able to like brush your hair, maybe, you know, splash some water on your face or whatever. Can you add, can you get that into the codes? (laughs) Um, You know, I, for, for a long time, it was a bonus in the code where you could build additional, uh, additional building area. If you provided something like that, Um, I think that may not be in the code anymore for um, reasons that are too complicated to go into but i will say when they renovated the basement of our building uh they put in uh as well as the bike room they put in a fitness exercise room which is a pretty common amenity in a lot of office buildings and in between the fitness room and the bike room there are lockers and showers um so you know if people do have you know a kind of more strenuous commute and they want to shower before they get into work uh, they can and you know i know i have I have colleagues who in regular times would uh, commute in in cycling gear and then get changed into their office gear in the morning. But also I was listening to one of your recent podcasts and uh, you're having a conversation with uh, Jenna about, you know, the benefits of, uh, of e-bikes. And, you know, I really think as they become more and more common, that's a, you know, that's a real benefit to them because I think a lot of people who are going into, you know, whatever kind of job is they don't want to arrive sweaty and that is one of the great advantages of having e-bikes right and and you know it's different depending on different disciplines i mean in portland we're a little more casual but you know some people still have really formal jobs and yeah you need to be able to yeah so an e-bike or a shower you need you need one (laughs) or the other maybe (laughs) maybe both um yeah and the other thing just about indoor bike parking is just like in the winter time you don't want to get outside and like like, I know I'm futzing around my bike, getting stuff loaded up, but you also just want to have like a dry seat when you, when you leave, you know, it's like, yeah, nice to yeah. have that, that covered parking. Oh, for sure. Although I will admit, uh, I'm the world's biggest fair weather cyclist at the slightest sign of rain. I'm getting the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Do you don't, do you, you don't own a car, do you? I don't. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and you get around a lot by like bike town, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I when Bike Ten first launched, I thought, oh, this is a nice novelty that I'll use every now and again. And then I um, I used it more and more and more. And you know, just particularly the convenience of being able to pick up a bike and then cycle somewhere and then just leave the bike and not even have to worry about it. It's not as soon as it's locked. It's not my concern anymore. In 2020, Portland changed the system from uh, from all. Uh, traditional analog manual bikes to all e-bikes and uh, uh although i do miss the old manual bikes i will admit that the uh the e-bikes are pretty nice to ride 
Do you have Do you have your own bike? Uh, I do. Yes, you do. Okay, because I, I think never that, seen me on it. No, I think any time I've seen you out, you've either gotten there by bus or by yeah, bike share. So yeah, yeah. So it's that's what I think is interesting. Like the way that even it's not like people are only use bike share because they don't have a bike, right? Like. Yeah, there are lots no, of reasons th- to use it. No, I think uh, I think the great thing about having a bike share system uh, in a city is that it's really complementary, and you know probably people use it in many different ways. But I find that if I'm doing just a short trip and particularly like a one way trip, I'll often uh, I'll often uh, use a. Uh, use the bike share system. Whereas if I want to go for more of a leisure ride or a group bike ride, um, or I know I'm making a round trip, then I'll more likely use my own bike. Hey Ian, are the, are the corrals for the bike share bikes part of the whole zoning puzzle? They're pretty independent. Uh, I think most of the, the corrals that have been built in the city have been just on the right of way. Um, you know, typically using a parking spot or uh, on wider sidewalks. However, you do occasionally see private development that's, um, you know, if they've got, you know, some kind of like plaza or something in front of the building, they've been able to integrate into it, a bike share, uh, bike share station into it. But, uh, uh, as far as I know, there's no requirements that would require somebody to do so. Just getting back to, I know this is another really sort of big question, but like bike parking and all of the, like how does all that end up impacting the prices of apartments and housing, right? Like we talked a little bit about if there's a lot of car parking, that takes a lot of space and things can be a little bit more expensive because of that. But like, how does this all play out in terms of, is that that's a really big question. <laughs> well, what I can say is there's no such thing as free building area uh, to build. And so, you know, no matter how simple you make your bike room, that's always going to cost something to build. But the way I think about it is we've mostly removed park our car parking requirements that would exist in in other cities and say you're doing a 200 unit building and your requirement is to build 300 bike parking spaces distributed through that building. Uh, it's an awful lot cheaper to build those those spaces than it is to try and build uh, two or 300 car parking spaces. And those bike rooms are often filled. I mean, I feel like when I've been, and I mean, I don't know how many I've seen, but I feel like when I have gone to friends' apartments into the bike rooms, there are a lot of bikes in those bike rooms. Right. Yeah, I mean they're they're well used to a point where it can sometimes be a management problem, uh, you know, because sometimes there's people who who might um, you know have bikes that they they don't actually really use. They're just functioning as uh, long term storage for for a bike that might not even be in working condition, uh, rather than rather than a bike that actually gets regular use. And so uh, I've heard different ways about the ways that uh, apartment management companies will deal with that. But yes, in general, it's not like we're building lots of empty bike rooms. Those, those get used. There's, there's a lot of us who end up with extra bikes <laughs> here <Yeah>. and there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think the important thing is also, you know, I'm somebody who lives without a car, but uh, that you know that's certainly not everybody who bikes and it's not just an either or thing it's uh, uh you know a lot of people they might have a job um you know in the portland context like you know at somewhere like um you know out in washington county and it's uh 
it's very hard practically, although people, some people do it, but for a lot of people, it's very hard to cycle out to those jobs and they might drive, but it's still really important, I think, from a planning point of view that we consider making it possible for them to use bikes for the other kinds of journeys that they might make in their life. And the commute to work is not the only trip that we have to plan around. Yeah, that is actually right. Cause a lot of our, a lot of planning has sort of, as I understand it revolved around thinking about people getting to work, but of course there's lots of places that we need to go on a daily basis. And right. Like you can't just do like downtown to the neighborhoods or whatever. Right. Cause you also need to go to the grocery store and the library. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you want to leave folks with in terms of uh, like where to find you or where to find projects that you're working on, websites, links? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Mekunish, uh, which is my last name in uh, my last name, Mackenzie in Gaelic, but spelled M-A-C-C-O-I-N-N. ICH, uh, or um, you can check out my blog, which is on a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but uh, it's got years of archives about uh, what's being built in Portland, and that's at nextportland.com. Nextportland.com. All right. Thank you so much for, Thank you. for joining Thank you. us. I learned a lot. <laughs> I really <Good>. did. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thanks. Have a good night. Have a good night. Isn't he lovely? I just like listening to Ian talk. (laughs) I mean, he's just so lovely and warm and kind. And also, I just would like, he could just like, I don't know, like read from a manual. (laughs) And I'd like listening to him. (laughs) Manual. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, this is just lovely. (laughs) He's going to be embarrassed. Sorry, Ian, he's probably going to be embarrassed (laughs) if he actually listens to this that I said that. Well, we got, uh, we've got a little bit of mail in the form of not mail, in the form of a social media comment, a really nice comment from uh, Go Dig a Hole, our supporter. He said, if you haven't listened to Sprocket Podcast before, they're an incredible resource for folks looking to use bikes in their daily lives. I owe much of my bike-focused lifestyle to their advice. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, right? <laughs> I was like, man, that's great. And I sent that, we saw that and I sent it off to uh, Brock and Aaron and Guthrie to make sure they saw it. Um, Aaron and Guthrie not being as active on social media. Brock, of course, being very active on social media probably would have seen it. Uh, you know, since he's he's probably talking most about most about them. But that was a really, thanks so much to Go Dig a Hole for sharing that. Made us all feel very good about ourselves. So please send us your compliments, your kind <laughs> words. Feel free to send them to us at the Sprocket Podcast at gmail.com or send it to us on social media. And oh, yeah, I, I didn't, uh, we don't, I don't, we have any, we don't have any specific news, but I just saw this right before we came on, on, on the air to record is uh, that Bud Clark passed away, uh, former mayor of Portland. Uh, famous bikey mayor. I saw that and I just don't know enough to comment. I saw another bit of bike related news, um, very Portland specific about a bike event. Did you see this Armando? Do you know what's coming back? <laughs> Do you know what's coming back? 
this spring? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, I saw that post and uh, it sort of stopped my heart for a little bit. So I was still yeah. excited. <laughs> so, uh, except for the past two years, uh, I don't even know how long it's been going on, but uh, we've had an event the past years in Portland, except not the past two, the Lads 500 coming up Saturday, April 9th. And um, I don't know, Armando, do you want to, this is just such a delightful event. Do you want to describe this for folks who, who might not know what it is? It's just so. so yeah. So last edition is a neighborhood in Portland, uh, an old, old neighborhood. It was planned, you know, at the beginning of Portland and it has, uh, it has a very unique uh, street layout. It's sort of like a spider web I'm in a, and has traffic circles and gardens and, uh, it's really a really beautiful neighborhood, but the main traffic circle, I call it a traffic circle, it's actually just a circle, but uh, it's like a roundabout or, or something like that. The main circle is pretty big. And I think if you, I think if you ride, depending on where, if you ride on the inner circle or the outer circle, if you ride around, I'm going to say the outer circle. Um, if you ride around the outer circle of the, of the, the outer portion of the traffic circle, it actually equals to like one fifth of a mile. I think if you ride around it 500 times, you do a century. And so I think that's where the origins of the, the last 500 came in. And David Barshall Robinson created a ride. Let's do something stupid. Lads 500 uh, join up with the team. And there actually are some rules to it. Uh, uh, you have to ride. Even if you're a single rider doing the 500 laps, you have to alternate between two bikes. You can't just ride just one bike. And, and so it just became this phenomenon. Everybody showed up, teams showed up, people ride around, bring grills, grill, grill by bike showed up. You know, just all these different uh, bikey folks came and, and rode their bikes around for a, a day. And we made pancakes a, party. a few years ago. Remember we had pancakes? We had... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was fun. We brought like, right. I think we brought my, um, t- like my canopy, right. Oh, yeah, Did we, we bring canopy, that yeah. and set it up. Yeah. So it was a little bit rainy. Gosh, I think, I think yeah, I only did it. Year. I think Not I only bad, did it though. twice, but it just feels like such a, it's such a, um, uh, one thing I really like about it is all the different kinds of bikes that show up, mm-hmm. right? So you have people on tall bikes and freak bikes, and then you have people on, little kid bikes and then you unicycles, have unicycles long boards you have people I, and Tandem. just like some road bikes yeah and cargo bikes uh and it's and and it seems to really bring all different kinds of bike people out and it's um and you can you know just ride a few laps and hang out with people the whole time if you want or you can ride a little more it's just such a delightful uh harbinger of spring and a new bike season yeah Super fun. And I really, and so it was canceled the past two years and like, let's go lads 500. So, <laughs> and I think so. Yeah. I think Saturday, Saturday, April 9th, folks can find it on shift bikes.org or just Google lads 500. If they want, if you're in Portland, I'm going to guess that probably, probably Armando and I will both be there. Lots of people. So come and join us and say hello if you'd like. Maybe we'll wear our Sprocket podcast t-shirts <laughs> under several other layers of clothing because <laughs> it will still be April. Yeah. So that's great. That's fun. I'm looking forward to that. You don't have to be any specific kind of bike person. You can just, you know, 
or a bike person at all to enjoy that. And you can come and, uh, you know, we've had teams where people just like show up without a team and then they just join us too. That's nice. Hangers on. (laughs) Come find us. (laughs) Even if you want to ride just one lap. One lap. That's all you need to do. Yeah. Or just hang out. The Sprocket Podcast is produced in Portland, Oregon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and tell your friends about us. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Herbert for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Cameron Lane. Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn Kubish. Eric Weiss, Doug Cohen-Miller, Chris Smith. Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt. Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Drew the Welder, Anna. Andre Johnson, Richard G., Guthrie Straw. Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Regrainery. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay. Harry Hugel, E.J. Finneran, Brad Hipwell, Keith Hutchison. Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Jason Oftenberg, David Moore, Todd Grossbeck. Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Chris Barron! <laughs> Sean Baird, Gregory Braithwaite. Dude Luna. Hey, that's me! Emma Rooks. Philip M. Spartan Dale, Mr. T Who Never Really Left, Bike Initiative, Keweenaw. Sarah G. Adam D. Go Dig a Hole, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G., Rachel Moline. Jimmy Diesel, Jonathan Lee, Hami Romani. And our newest sponsors, The Mania Day and Alan Kessler. And thanks to all our former supporters who helped us along the way. Now, brush your teeth. And go to bed. <laughs> <laughs>